The text for our sermon this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 36. I will not read all those verses. I will read enough to give us the gist of the story, and those verses will be up here on the screen. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And if a man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, then you must take as much as your heart desires, he would then answer him, no, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. Now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And so he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Why do you kick at my sacrifices and my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling place and honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel my people? Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he will walk before my anointed forever. This time we'll call the kids down front for their children's sermon. The verses that we read this morning tell us of a a very, very bad time in the history of God's people. The leader of the church in those days was a man named Eli. And Eli had two sons who he was supposed to be training and teaching so that one of them could take over his place as leader of the church when Eli died. In the next chapter, we're going to find out that Eli was about 90 years old. He was nearly blind and he was very heavy and very weak. But even when he was younger and strong... He did not teach and discipline his sons like he was supposed to. I know that you don't like it when you're disciplined by your parents, but this chapter shows us what happens when children are not disciplined by their parents. These boys grew up to be very wicked, and they were supposed to be very holy because they were ministers. They were supposed to know God's word and be able to teach it to the people who came to worship, but they did not know and love God, and the Bible tells us that. So they used their position to abuse God's people. When people brought sacrifices to God or gifts to God's house, these two men took it for themselves. And the people worried. that They were afraid that maybe God wouldn't accept their offering for sin because these two men were taking the animals for themselves as their food. And if anyone complained, these two men would threaten to hurt them. Now, Eli was their dad, but he was also their boss as priest. Now, he would scold them a little, but he did not discipline them in the way that he should have. He should have never let them become ministers. 
God's law provided a way to replace them with someone else who was faithful to God. And that's what Eli should have done. But these were his boys, and he didn't want to hurt their feelings. And so he ended up hurting the entire church. People no longer wanted to come to church to worship God because they were afraid of these two men. If Eli had taught them and trained them properly and disciplined them for their sins, well, they would have learned the right way and they would have behaved. And so we see how important it is that children have discipline in their lives. The Bible says that foolishness, which is a word the Bible uses as another name for sin, foolishness is in the heart of a child, but correction, that is discipline, will drive it far from him. All of God's people were suffering because of Eli and his two wicked sons. But in this dark and sad story, there's a small light. We read that Samuel was growing up to love and serve God. Last week, we read the verse that says, the Lord kills and makes alive. And in our verses today, God tells old Eli that he's going to kill these two wicked priests and replace them with a faithful minister. Now, this is really a promise about Jesus. Jesus is the true priest of God's people. But in the meantime, God is going to raise up little Samuel to be a true servant of God who will teach the people God's word. And this shows us God's deep love for his people. Even when they are sunk in, in deep and ugly sin, he sends faithful ministers to them so that they might repent and return to the Lord. We'll pray, and then you can return to your seats. God, who didst of old speak unto the fathers by the prophets, and has spoken unto us in these last days by thy Son, speak to us now in thy holy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May thy Holy Spirit be with us now as a spirit of light and life. And may Christ be glorified in the preaching of his gospel this day. May grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of thee and of Jesus our Lord. For his name's sake. Amen. The story our text gives us this morning is a prime example of what happens when church discipline breaks down. All Reformed churches confess the, the three marks of the church. Orthodox preaching, lawful administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. Our Heidelberg Catechism treats church discipline under the name of the keys of the kingdom. That's a reference, of course, to Matthew 16, 19, which reads, And I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What does a key do? It opens and locks doors. And our catechism calls preaching and church discipline the keys of the kingdom, whereby the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers and shut against unbelievers. How does, the, how does church discipline shut the door of the kingdom? Question 85 of the catechism answers that, and I'll just paraphrase the answer. When a professing Christian maintains doctrines or practices inconsistent with his profession of faith and then refuses to repent after having been admonished, he is forbidden the use of the sacraments. And in this way, he is excluded from the Christian church and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. 
So we come to our first of the three points this morning, the condition of the church. We're referring to the condition of the church in the days of Eli. John Calvin famously said, when God wishes to judge a people, he gives them wicked rulers. We generally interpret that statement politically, but it applies to a church as well as to a nation. That Israel had a judge and high priest of Eli's character was the result of a long process of apostasy. Throughout the period of the judges, we see an almost nonstop downward spiral. And sad to say, things are about to grow even darker. We think of Samuel as the great reformer of the judges era church, and he was. But things didn't improve overnight just because he was born. Things got worse before they got better. Throughout the 400 plus year of the judges, the church had lapsed and relapsed into idolatry. And it was because Israel didn't deal with the Canaanites as God had commanded. Now, of course, we shudder in horror at the idea that Israel was supposed to kill everything that breathed in Canaan. But that tells us a few things. A, we're no different from Israel. Read Joshua and Judges and you'll see just how unfaithful Israel was in executing that command. B, none of us truly appreciates the gravity of sin. God was destroying the Canaanites because of their sins. It would be funny if it wasn't so tragic, but people often protest. If God is real, why doesn't he do something about all the evil in the world? Then when God kills Noah's world with the flood or eradicates the Canaanites by Joshua's army, these same people protest that that isn't fair. Back when COVID first started, someone protested to me, if God is real, why doesn't he do something about it? And I responded that maybe he's sending it to kill a bunch of sinners who refuse to repent. You haven't thought about that, did you? And see, we see that proper government of the church is a monarchy. During the judges, the church was essentially a democracy. Repeatedly we read, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. By giving Israel a king, God was indicating the true nature of his church. It's not a democracy, nor is it a republic. It is a kingdom. And Christ rules over the church as an absolute monarch. He has no advisors, no cabinet that give him advice on how to rule his domain. Now, when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was king, because of Judah's sin, God brought Shishak, the king of Egypt, against Judah. Rehoboam and Judah repented, and so God relented and said that he wouldn't destroy them. And yet God declared, nevertheless, they will be his, Shishak, they will be his servants, so that they learn to distinguish my service from the service of the kingdoms of the nations. When the church rebels against the good and gracious governing of the Lord, he often puts them under the hand of abusive foreigners so that they get a taste of the the grass on the other side. God's wrath comes on those who commit evil, and that wrath often takes the form of the evil that other men do. And that's how life transpired in the church during the days of the judges. The rank-and-file member of the church was was wishy-washy and compromised, and even the best of them had acclimated to the pagan culture of the Canaanites, and therefore God chastened his church with corrupt and ineffectual leaders like Eli and his sons. 
Eli's sons were. They were desperately wicked. The Bible explains their wickedness with the words, they did not know the Lord. Frightening to think about when that's your minister. Think about the mainline denominations that deny all the cardinal tenets of the Christian faith and support all the moral and social evils that God's law abominates. Well, Eli's sons are an example of this very thing. And they show us that a church or denomination that falls under the leadership of such men is under the curse of God. There was a whole host of, of candidates for the priest's office, but God had overruled the fate of Aaron's family in order to put Eli in charge in these waning days of the judges. Now, since we have no experience of worshiping God under the Old Testament sacrificial system, it's kind of hard for us to appreciate just exactly what these guys were doing. We read about them doing things with the flesh that was offered for the sacrifices, but since we've never done it, we're likely not familiar with the process that God had appointed in His Word. So, so let me explain. According to the law, when a man brought an animal in for sacrifice, depending on the type of sacrifice, part of the animal was butchered from the body to be given to the priest's family as their food. Now, considering how many sacrifices were offered, the priests were generous, uh, generously provided for out of those sacrifices. In Leviticus 7 and other places, God clearly defines what portions the priests were to have, how they were to take these portions, how they were to cook them, and who was allowed to eat of it with them. But these men, Hophni and Phinehas, introduced a new custom that differed from the stipulations of the law. In other words, they tinkered with God's worship. They altered the process of getting meat for the priests so that they took more meat and what would have been considered better cuts. They were taking portions that God's law specifically marked out as God's, integral to the sacrifices. And this custom caused worry among the faithful worshipers of God. Is, is my sacrifice even acceptable? Hophni and Phinehas are taking the parts that are supposed to be offered to God. And moreover, these two men operated like, like mafia muscle. If anyone refused to give them their cut, well, they just refused to offer the sacrifice or they'd take it by force. They might beat up a worshiper and take what they wanted. It was so bad, people didn't even want to go to church anymore. And worse yet, they were abusing women who were serving in the tabernacle. Now, the Bible doesn't describe exactly what these ladies were doing, but we can make an educated guess based on what we know from Scripture. These girls were likely single young ladies who had made a vow or maybe whose parents had made a vow for them to offer some service at the tabernacle for a specific period of time. Hophni and Phinehas were sexually assaulting and abusing these ladies. Now, I've said this many times, but corrupt worship and sexual immorality go hand in hand. Imagine that you go to church and the duly appointed church officers are gruff and abusive. And I don't mean that they just got up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. I mean, they're always this way. They won't perform their duties without kickbacks. You don't get the Lord's Supper. You don't get your babies baptized. You don't get married. You don't get buried. You don't get fed God's word unless you grease someone's palm. And for good measure, you constantly have to keep an eye on them because they're always trying to put the moves on your daughters. How long would you put up with that? And a church like ours, not long. We can always call an emergency meeting and vote to depose that church officer. 
Israel didn't quite have that option because those positions were hereditary. Now, before we start falling into pity for poor Israel, remember that this was God's judgment upon them for forsaking the purity of his worship, violating his law by making common cause with his enemies, the wicked Canaanites. God was judging them by giving them wicked rulers. For generations, the church had tolerated and engaged in compromise with the wicked Canaanites. They had tolerated and engaged in pollution of God's worship, tolerated idolatry within the borders of Israel and contempt for God's law. And now all of a sudden, they want God's protection when they worship after decades of failing to protect God's worship. You reap what you sow. They had sowed the wind and now they were reaping the whirlwind. Remember what our catechism teaches. Those who, under the name of Christians, maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith and will not, after having been often brotherly admonished, renounce their errors and wicked course of life. Now, is anyone ever better fit that description than Hophni and Phinehas? They refused to renounce their wicked course of life. Now, maybe they weren't always directly complained of to Eli because the worshipers might have thought that they're his sons. He knows what they're doing. So either he doesn't care or he's in on it too. And besides, who is he more likely to believe and side with? Me or his own sons? So they might not have been complained of. I think they were. Eli certainly knew. He heard the stories that were going around. Now, these men should have been deposed from their office as priests, and they should have been excommunicated from the church, but they weren't. And God's people suffered because of it. And that shows us the true purpose of church discipline. I mean, sure, we want to recover the erring brother or sister. When we discipline our children, it's because we want to recover them from their error. We want them to learn that they shouldn't do those things. But discipline directly benefits everyone else, and it does so in two ways. First, it removes the pernicious influence. If the erring member is particularly influential, he or she may draw away people into his or her error. Discipline cuts off the power of the influence. And secondly, discipline gets everyone else's attention. Often you'll find this expression in Scripture, that others may see and fear. When we see that Christ's church does not tolerate error, we sit up and pay attention. The power of temptation is dissipated. I'm not getting myself into that situation. Let's move on to our second point, the corruption that was in the church. Now, it's, it's very important for us to keep two things separate in our minds as we assess Eli's responsibility and guilt. Because it wasn't just that he was a bad father. He was a bad church officer. And let's be clear, Eli was not just father to Hophni and Phinehas. He was also their boss. In both relations, he was their superior. There's something I, ha- I have to explain, and it's going to be difficult maybe to put it exactly into the right words, so bear with me. Because the priesthood so directly pointed to Christ, the office of high priest outweighed family relationships whenever these two came into conflict with each other. Think, for instance, of Aaron, the first high priest. Two of his sons died in one day for violating God's very specific commands about the offerings. 
while they were engaged in offering what Scripture calls strange, that is unauthorized, fire, the fire of God shot out of the pillar that hovered over the tabernacle across the the courtyard area of, of Israel's camp and killed these two men. And God strictly prohibited Aaron from expressing his natural fatherly grief over their deaths. He was not allowed to publicly mourn their deaths because they got what they deserved for perverting God's worship. Aaron as priest had to separate his private life from his official status as priest. The priesthood was not a job. He was not an employee of the tabernacle. The priesthood was not a job. It was an office. And Aaron was never again just Moses' brother. He was never again a private citizen. Everything he did was done in the office of priest and as the foreshadowing of Christ. Christ will certainly not mourn the death of men who corrupt the worship of his church. Again, it's important to remember that Eli was these men's father, but he was also their superior priest. And in reality, since the priesthood was such a significant office because it typified Christ, Eli's status as their superior priest outranked his status as their father. And this is one of the few cases where such is true. Since Eli was the high priest, he was to be the teacher, instructor, and example to his sons. Now, in a perfect world, these boys would have never gotten this far out of control. Eli would have dealt with them long earlier. But let's imagine the hypothetical situation where Eli does what his duties required. He would have called these two men onto the carpet and frankly told them, your rebellious behavior and disrespect for the character of God's worship disqualifies you from serving as priests. You are relieved of duties as of yesterday. He would have replaced them with his next two sons. And if he had no other sons, he would have gotten his brother's two oldest sons. I'm stressing this fact for a reason. Had Eli fully realized the gravity and the significance of his office, he would have dealt with these men as the priest of God. But because he put his office below his fatherhood, he dealt with them as an indulgent dad. Now, God makes no bones about it that Eli's son's sinfulness was largely Eli's fault. He never restrained them any more than to say, hey, I don't like the stories I'm hearing about you guys. Eli was guilty for letting them grow up this way, obviously, but he was more at fault for not dealing with them as a church officer. His sin was that he did not apply church discipline. When church officers forget what their office actually is, they tend to view it as a profession rather than an office. Leadership in Christ's church is not like that of a bank or of a company. Ministers are not professionals. When worldly-minded men begin to occupy the office, church office turns into a good old boys club. And men in power often overlook punishable offenses in their fellow officers, and then they lie to protect their power by saying, well, if we deal with these people, if we deal with this, people will lose respect for the institution, and that'll lessen our ability to do good. 
And we've all seen this evil. It happens at the city level, at the county level, the state level, and at the federal level. Anywhere men have power, they do anything necessary to protect it. And it's a lie, though, and we all know it. If a person in a position of authority, be he a policeman, a judge, a teacher, an alderman, a senator, uh, a pastor, is publicly disciplined and removed from office by his peers for violating the code of conduct appropriate to his office, we will not lose respect for the institution. Quite the opposite. We'll gain respect for it because we'll believe it when it is said that no one is above the law. Whatever Eli's motivation, either way, he failed miserably to deal with sinful church officers. And God rebuked him at exactly that point. You honor your sons more than me. Remember, Eli was simultaneously their father and their boss. And I believe that this particular feature of the Old Testament church's government is ripe with lessons for us. The reality of our spiritual brotherhood in the faith is clearly depicted for us by the fact that the Old Testament church officers were literally blood relatives. Because of the close family relationship, we learn that church discipline often has a very sharp edge. Now, we like to think of church discipline as a way to deal with, with the troublemakers that nobody likes. But in reality, that's not whatever really happens. The people who will need to be censured and or removed will be those with whom we have shared many years of fellowship and service. That's why whenever doctrinal or practical crises arise in a church or denomination, things are usually way, way out of control before most people notice. There's always a few prescient men who can see the trouble coming. They're able to read the times and foresee where things will go if left unchecked. And almost without fail, they are the men who get in trouble. Church history in America bears this out. The men who voice objections to the errors in doctrine and practice get silenced. They'll be publicly censured or even defrocked. It happened in the new school, old school schism of 1837. The men who raised the faithful clarion call against the growing heresy within Presbyterian and congregational churches were all but ignored. In their day, they were viewed as implacable cranks. Though history has proven them right, today they're virtually unknown. In the early part of the 20th century, J. Gresham Machen was defrocked in order to shut up the dissenting conservative voice within the liberalizing Northern Presbyterian Church. Right now, in 2022, the same thing is going on, to my knowledge, in at least two of the most ostensibly conservative Reformed denominations. The men who have raised the alarm have been censured, deplatformed, defrocked, deposed, and brutally silenced. I always say that the book of Judges is, as an, is a, an epitome of church history. Nothing I've seen in the last 25 or 30 years makes me question that assertion. Now, I suppose we should give some credit where credit is due. Eli was a great teacher and mentor for Samuel. It may be that Eli looked back on his past failures and took a much more hands-on approach with Samuel. There are, there are men who are terrible dads, but great coaches. 
Eli seems to be one of those guys. In every interaction that Scripture records between Eli and Samuel, we find Eli doing what he should have done with his own sons. And thirdly, we come to the cure. Let's read verses 34 through 36. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas. And one day they shall die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he will walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, Please put me into one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. Last week, I asserted that 1 Samuel 2.6 is the theme of the two books of Samuel. And indeed, it's the theme of the whole Bible. And we see that proven true right here at the end of chapter 2. God declares his plan to kill the evil Hophni and Phinehas and to raise up a faithful priest. God also declares that Eli's house will be removed from the priesthood. And God depicts them as begging the new order of priests for a job. Please give me something that I may eat a piece of bread. Even in their judgment it appears they still won't be repentant. They're still motivated by their appetites. Their God is their belly and their end is destruction. The church on earth is always governed indirectly by delegated authority. We saw that a few weeks ago when we were closing out our series on Hebrews. In the context of an exhortation to respect and obey the ministers of the church, Paul says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The cure for the woes of the church in the days of Eli is the same cure for the woes of the church in the 21st century. The faithful priest, Christ. So what about the situation of the church in the days of Eli? Well, what about the situation in an apostatizing denomination in 2022? In both cases, we look to Christ, the faithful priest. In the Old Testament, believers looked forward to the first advent of Christ. Believers now look forward to the second advent of Christ. In our gospel reading, Jesus said to rebuke the sinner privately. If that fails to recover him, take two or three witnesses. If that fails, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. I can just hear a bunch of reformed mouthpieces and evangelical leaders objecting to that. But that is Those are the words of the the head of the church. Christ will brook no rivals. He killed Hophni and Phinehas to prove that to us. We may be uncomfortable with the notion of treating a man as a heathen who was once respected in our midst, but that is Christ's command. Our effeminate niceness will ruin us. How do you think denominations apostatize? You don't just wake up one morning to find your pastor promoting abortion, sodomy, and Bolshevism. It's a slow and deliberate process. It's the the frog in the kettle phenomenon, right? You put a frog in boiling water, he leaps out. You put him in lukewarm water and slowly heat it to a boil, the frog won't sense the danger and will be cooked to death. Similarly, people are often unwilling, unable, and unwilling to recognize dangers until, because they come on so, so slowly and so gradually. And then by the time the true nature of the threat is perceived, 
You've been cooked. As long as the church is on earth, it is engaged in war. And we neglect that fact to our own peril. And church discipline is one of the tools that God has given us in our warfare against sin, the world, and the devil. And as the church under Eli suffered because of the lack of it, so will we. Let us pray.